Gods of War by Kyle Eidelman was the uh, the class this quarter. This is the last class. Uh, Alan asked me to to take the summary. This is supposed to be kind of like a wrap up uh, summary. And as I was talking to some of the folks earlier, I I tried to approach it like a uh, like this was the uh, uh, the review of the course before the final. So if you all come back next week, there will be a final waiting for you. Uh, <laughs> not really, but let's take a look at what we've. Uh, We've studied, and Eidelman breaks it up. I'm going to try to stay out of your view, but I, and I do move a lot, so I apologize for that. But Eidelman broke up the study into four areas, kind of like an introduction area in the gods of war. Uh, he talked about idolatry, the issue, the background of the gods, jealous God, and calling the gods. But then he got into some specifics, what he called temples, and it was the temple of pleasure, uh, which had the God of food, God of sex, and God of entertainment. Then the next temple was that of power, which was the God of success, God of money, and God of achievement. And then the last one, that area he covered, was the God of love, which was of romance, family, and, and God of me. I added the parents because of those that have heard me before or have been around me for a while. You know, we all, I've always said we worship at the idol of me, myself, and I. And that's where we sacrifice. Well, Eidelman owns, uh, opens the study with an anecdote about his eight-year-old daughter. And, and, he's, and she's memorized the, eight, the Ten Commandments. And uh, I almost said eight because there's only two commandments that really count, right? According to Jesus. According to Hittleman, uh, uh, which was one of the rabbis there, that he said that uh, the first two commandments are what count. The rest is commentary. Uh, so, which is true, and that's what Jesus said as as well. But she she gave him the all ten commandments, and uh, he, he got into asking her if she kept them, and whether she lied, and and, and so it, it was it was kind of an interesting segue into what are the gods, and and it kind of got him to thinking about that. So let's take a look, and we'll start at the gods of war because that kind of sets the stage uh, for what what we have. Uh, he opens up with, with three case studies uh, in the gods of war, and, and we'll get into the idolatry is the issue. Uh, I don't know if you'll remember the three case studies. One was that it's all about money, or it's not about money, and it was. He had a case study of a guy that, that told him it's, money has nothing to do with it, but actually it was. And then there was the one about the, the uh, no big deals about the girl that was living with her boyfriend. She was raised in the church, but she was living with her boyfriend, and... Uh, uh, he, he talks about that uh, a God is something we sacrifice and what we pursue. From where I sit, you have the Lord God on one side saying one thing and your boyfriend saying the other thing. If you choose, and you're choosing your boyfriend over God. The Bible calls that idolatry, and it's actually a pretty big deal. So she wound up getting her head on straight, which was in, this, in the case study. The other one was the secret struggle about a guy with pornography, and, and he talked about that. And... Uh, and ask, which one are you worshiping, uh, God or sex? And so we'll, we'll get into those in a little bit more detail. So if idolatry is the issue, and, and what he says is idolatry isn't an issue, it's the issue, and he quoted Exodus in that. Um, we start, uh, uh, idolatry isn't just one of many sins, it's one great sin that the others all come from. And that was kind of like, talk, talked about a tree and that, that, that idolatry is the tree and the branches are all the different idols that we, that, that we have. 
And, and one of our problems, he, he says, is, is we can't identify what, uh, what, uh, uh, what the God is that's, that's in our hearts. So by the way, if you, if, stop me if you, you've got a comment or, or something like that. Uh, I've, I've got a lot of pages, but if we don't get through tonight, that's, that's okay. We, I'd rather that, that we get something out of it instead of, instead of me giving you a fire hose. Uh, the one point that he made in this was God said, there is no uh, paradigm or, or order of tree, tree order with, uh, with gods. He says, you'll have no other gods before me. And he went, and Eidelman went into the, exactly what that is saying. He's not saying that I want to be the number one God and you can have two, three, four, and whatever. He says, no. He says, there are no other gods in your heart. I am it. And he also pointed out that God is a very jealous God. He wants to occupy our hearts. And we'll get into a little bit further where it says that, that he, he is so much of a jealous God that he will continue to pursue us. And uh, was it Hosea? Which was the one that had Gomer for a wife? There's a Hosea. And, and so much though that he actually used a prophet to tell us about how much his jealousy and how much he would pursue us. And he used him. So uh, the Bible's paradigm is different. God isn't interested in competing against others or being first among many. He is the God of our hearts. So Eidelman gets in and when he starts talking about the battleground, you know, of course, he's going to be talking about the Internet. And, and he talks about, he compares the Internet with our relationship um, the situation that we live in when we look at, we're looking for God. And he says, you know, you can search for almost anything on the internet. And he said, many of us are looking and we think we are looking for God, but we're looking for something else that pleases us and we just don't realize it. And so much like the internet identifies us by our searches, what we are searching for and chasing after reveals the God that's winning the war in our hearts. And so, so how does the search continue? Much like checking your background history. He says, I can't check everybody's background history. Although I, I, would, I would submit that, yes, he could. Uh, I could probably find out everybody's background if I, if I wanted to pay a little bit of money. It's, it's out there. Uh, if you've ever uh, applied for something, it's out there. Well, what he's saying is, is like, Checking your background history, we need to examine our hearts to find out where our allegiance lies and where our glory goes. And he talks about Proverbs 4.23 where it says, Above all else, guard your heart for everything about you flows from it. And, and you really can. And Jesus tells us to look for the fruit of a person. Look for their character. Look for what they're doing. I always say that, that, that you know, with, with the elections coming up in this election season, you know, it, it's, talk's cheap, but too often times we're swayed by talk. What we need to do is look at the person's care. What, what have they done? What's their track record? And, and I think you can do the same thing for yourself. What have I been doing? And in a much like this, when I, when I talk about we and us, I, I also t have point back. My mom used to say, never point at somebody. You got three fingers pointing back at you. And, and when I talk about this, I also am talking about myself. Um, the Hebrews used to think that, that 
that our hearts were the source from which our life flows, our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. If we journey upstream, we'll find out what the problem is, is that's causing this. And it's, uh, it's difficult for us to see ourselves as idol worshipers. I mean, yeah, I've, I've been in classes before, I said, well, after the Jews were taken to Babylon, there was no more idol worship. And according to Eidelman, you can look in the New Testament at the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians, and there's a lot of personal idol worship going on. So we get over to the, the next thing, which is a jealous God. And I don't know if, if, if Alan gave you the little anecdote about Michael Jordan. Do you all remember that? I thought that was just a neat one. The executive, he's over at a, an executive's house, and it got cold. He didn't bring a jacket. And the executive said, hey, just go to my jacket and just grab one of the jackets that fit you. And he was gone for a long time, and he comes out with a whole armload of jackets that were Puma jackets. And he said, dude, we're, not, we're Nike. We're not Puma. I will get my agent to give you all these, return all these jackets with Puma, or, or jackets that have Puma on it. And he took the jackets with him. Left with the jackets. So Michael Jordan had it in kind of the right way because that's how God looks at us. He doesn't want us having a closet full of gods. He wants only one God in, in the closet. Um, the prophet Ezekiel used a powerful uh, uh, analogy about what idol, idolatry feels like to God. He compares it to a cheating spouse. Uh, and this analogy runs through the scriptures as we talked about it with Hosea. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus kind of changes it a little bit. And do you remember what, what we talked about Jesus uh, talking about how God feels through Jesus in relationship to us? What does he call us? The Ecclesia. He calls it his, his bride. It's his bride. And that, you know, that's the highest compliment that he could give to us and how much he loves us. And, and, and as much as you love your bride or you love your groom, that's as much as God loves us in the church. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so this jealous God demonstrated not just in the offense uh, that he takes at our idolatry, but that he pursues our hearts. And, and I think Hosea was, a, was an excellent example about that. He kept telling Hosea, as I'm reading Hosea, I'm saying, why is Hosea going back to Gomer? You know, she's just going to leave him again. And, and God just goes back to us. Even if we start through idolatry, committing adultery. Oh, I already did that, didn't I? I got to I got to catch up with myself here. Yeah. You know, sometimes we stand at a fork in the road. And I'm reminded of... Uh, of Robert Frost's poem about two roads diverged into a wood. And, and a lot of times, you know, and, and his point in that was that he took the road less traveled. And, and I think that's kind of like what Eidelman was talking about, although he didn't get into it. But he's, he's saying that, you know, the, the, the other road has got a lot of easy, easy things to go to. And that's where all the, the gods lie, except for our God. And we need to take that road less traveled. And so let's take a look about, about calling all these gods. He gets back to Joshua, if you remember, when Joshua was talking to the children of Israel. 
and he was talking about, you know, after they're, they're, they're settling and they've had, had the, the fighting and everything. And in Joshua 24, 14 through 15, he makes this statement, Joshua does to the people. And Eidelman keys on that. He made three points. Joshua says, throw away the gods of your ancestors that your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors and beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in those land, whose land you are living. Then he goes on to say, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Okay, so he gives us three choices, three doors to choose from. But, you know, and a lot of people don't want to make the choice. And, but he didn't tip tiptoe around. He says, you know, you're going to be making a choice even if you don't make a choice. And, and a lot of people says, well, I don't, I don't worship any of these gods. And uh, we do, we just don't realize it. But he, and he told us that, uh, um, Eidelman tells us this is like four points on a compass. A, he says, uh, because whatever we choose to lead us is, leads us in a different direction. And a lot is at stake in the choice that we make. And I think I got the four points up here. Gods of our fathers and mothers, gods of our past, gods of our culture, and God himself. And, and that was, was Eidelman's point. I don't know if you guys covered those four points. Do you all remember that? Okay. Well, you can tell Alan that we covered the four points of the compass. <coughs> you can tell I haven't been teaching for a while. Um, then he gets into the, the, the different temples, and we're going into the temple of pleasure. And he goes into the, the, the God of food. Uh, but before he does that, he, he, he says that every one of us are wired for worship. We were just, it's, it's wired into us that, that we, we want. And, and our choices are a strong indication of what gods we are worshiping. What we choose to do for a living, how we choose to manage our money, what we choose to watch on TV, the people we choose to have as friends, the websites we choose to visit, the clothes we choose to wear. Don't take a look at me at what I'm wearing tonight. The way we choose to spend our day off, the food we choose to eat, and what we choose to think about. All these choices reveal the God or gods of our worship as we, so we, as we get into the specific gods. So the first one he got into was the God of food. And there's a point that I guess I should make right here. None of these gods are intended to be gods. It's not like God made food for us to worship. God made food. We made the decision to worship it. And, and God made uh, sex, and we'll talk about that. And we choose to worship. It's mankind's decision to do something uh, that he's been handed to. We could take a blessing. The internet was a blessing. But I'll talk a little bit later. It's a two-edged sword. For all the good it has, there's equally amount. Satan has the ability to make equally bad with anything that God has made for us. And so what we're talking about is, is Satan's way of, of, of doltrizing uh, what God has made good. Satan's made bad. So, Alan uh, may have mentioned the animated film called Over the Hedge about some animals that were going to live under a hedge. Did he talk about R.J., the raccoon? And he says, okay, I'm going to paraphrase because I'm more comfortable with that. Hey, dudes, we got to go live on the, under the hedge because these 
people, they, uh, they say, we live to eat, RJ says, and these guys eat to live. <coughs> and so they, they were going to go dwell under the hedge and eat all the food that's left over from all these humans because uh, all they did was live to eat. Eidelman may have, you may have read that Eidelman made a point that the Cheesecake Factory actually has a menu that's broken up into chapters and verses. Is that religion or what? Okay. Uh, Frank Farrell's written, a large part of mankind's ills and the world's misery is due to the rampant practice of tying, trying to feed the soul with the body's food. We hunger for food to comfort us. And he gives the story of, of Paul Jones, I think. Yeah, Paul Jones, who lost his wife, friends, and he wound up turning, into, turning to the refrigerator as a counterfeit lover. And every time he got down, he went and ate something. And John 6, the people were forced to choose between food to satisfy their hunger or Jesus to satisfy their souls. And there's a number of occasions, not just there in that chapter, that, that this happens. Uh, one of them is it was water with the woman at the well. Anyway, Joe, Jesus looked at the massive crowds. The count was 5,000, but uh, that was only the men present. There, was many, there may have been as many as 15,000 there. Paul Jones took three journeys before he, uh, before he found God's food for life. And Psalm 38, uh, 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And, and David's, David seemed to, to grasp that. And so we need to understand that, that, that we, we only need food for survival and not pleasure. Because once we decide that food is pleasure, then we, we're starting to put it into our hearts and we start living for food. Uh, if you don't believe me, drive down Academy, drive down, uh, drive down Powers and look at the number of, of, of restaurants that are, are in this city today. And, and we, we as a people love food. And I'm counting myself in that. Okay. So we go next to... Uh, Oh, I already talked about that. Okay. The God of sex. <clears throat> Eidelman said that sex was God's idea. Genesis, first chapter, first chapter, second chapter. He designed it intimately to connect us to a spouse. Sex done God's way is to create a supernatural bond between us. At the creation of humanity in Genesis 2.24, he said, it was arranged by God that a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Yet man's taken and turned sex into a hideous, destructive idol. Uh, that's Eidelman's words. I would say that Satan has spoken into our ears to turn it into a hideous idol. And many of us have accepted that. He gets into the <clears throat> what he calls a fairy tale gone wrong. And uh, you remember Amnon and Tamar? Was it Tamar? No, Tamar. Yeah, Tamar. Uh, half brother, half sister, and, and the story that did did Alan get into that with y'all? Because this whole section on this, uh, uh, this whole chapter on sex was he kept going back to that, and and it was uh, it's what Eidelman calls a fairy tale gone wrong. And says when something good becomes a god, the pleasure it brings dies in the process, and he used that as a as a, a an allegory or used the Eminence. Uh, feeling toward Tamer after he, he'd raped her, how he'd, he hated her and just was disgusted with it. 
And, and he points out that, that any idol or anything that we, we, we do like that, after it brings pleasure, the pleasure dies in the process. And uh, they actually, he, he made a point of it. He said, uh, philosophers used to call this the hedonistic paradox. Something we want so bad, we hate after we have it. And uh, the idea is that pleasure pursued for its own sake evaporates before our eyes. And uh, so Anna noticed Tamar's beauty, lusted after, and it seemed harmless enough. But it wasn't like he was going to act on these things. He was just thinking about it. And what did Jesus say about thinking about lusting after a woman? It's already done. It's in your heart. It's already done. That's right. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us in 10th chapter, 5th verse, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And, and that's something that, that's really hard because especially if, if you have a mind that chases squirrels like mine, um, uh, it won't take anything to drop a hat. And I'm off, off thinking about it. So, uh, and, and you know, <clears throat> he talks about sexual lust in this chapter. But the men's study, we got into to, there's more than just sexual lust. And, and Jesus talks about lusting after a woman and, and we can lust about after other things. We're going to find out a little bit later that we can lust after achievement, success, entertainment. We can lust after a lot of things. Uh, and and I'm, I'm going to confess right here, I lust, lust after a 65 Shelby Cobra. Uh, there's a blue one here in town that I will stop on the road and watch it go by. Now, I probably should go to confession or something after that, but... but I can just imagine me in that driver's seat and that beautiful little Shelby Cobra. Oh, anyway, uh, God of Entertainment is the next one that, that we got into. And uh, <clears throat> ever looked at your watch during one of Eddie's sermons and think, I sure hope Eddie isn't going to go into overtime. Maybe Matt will give him the high sign. Back in Enterprise, uh, Alabama, there was a saying that went around churches, is we hope the sermon doesn't go bad because we've got to beat the Baptist to the Golden Corral. So that's a, that, that, there's a, that was a form of entertainment that, that we had. But you know, football is a religion. And Eidelman talked about Peyton building, building the church there in Indianapolis, uh, that people. And I know preachers probably hate this, but during, during football season, this congregation, along with almost every congregation on Sundays, has a decimation of attendees if the game is up in Denver. Um, and, and, and we're wrong. We have put football as a religion, and the Mahai Stadium is our temple when we go there and we don't come worship God. Because we're basically telling God that you're second to the Broncos. <clears throat> and it's going to be hard to do now that they got Russell Williams, or Russell Williams, Wilson, Russell Wilson. But you know, uh, not just Peyton Manning, but uh, Elway, when he was here, I mean, everybody was like, everything, it was orange. And, and I find it humorous that, that we wear orange on Sunday that the Broncos are playing. Okay? That, that's just, just a thought. A 15-year-old video addict 
is uh, been described as displaying all the characteristics of a heroin addict. And I've got grandsons that that love video games, and and they'll be and they'll play for hours with. And there's the new way now is is you connect over it with some your buddies, and you're all playing the same game. And, and that and you can get really caught up in it. Uh, do we as sports addicts display the similar sy- symptoms? I got to meet so and so at the at the game. But technology, like all discoveries, is a two-edged sword. It brings great joy. It's novel, but it also cuts our souls if we let it. And the internet can be that way. Video games could be that way. Whatever we use or we turn our hearts to as a temple to worship in, uh, be it sports, be it video games, uh, it could be even as much as, as I like reading. I can let that get before God. So he made a question in there, and, uh, and I'll ask it here. He says, what's the difference between our iPhones and the shrines in India? Did you guys cover that part? Talked about all the shrines that were in India. People go and worship them. And they'll sit there all day long and just look at the shrine. And if you walk down the, the mall and looking at the number of people that have their shrine up in front of their face. Okay. That, that you know, what's the difference? We do the same thing. And, and, and Katie gets tired of me hearing this, but I, it's usually at a light. I say, okay, put the phone down and look at the light because they've already let three car lengths go by before they realize that they're holding traffic up. That's how bad but we look at our shrines. <clears throat> you know, the good news, according to Eidelman, is that God is a God of joy and he wants us to know that joy. According to 1 Timothy 6.17, it says, he richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. What we do with it is the problem. So I just ask that we, we remember that. And next time we start letting it get, it get in the way of God, let's, let's chastise ourselves and put it down, no matter what it is. C.S. Lewis tells us that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There is such thing as water, he goes on to say. If I find myself a desire with no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, then does that not prove that the universe is a fraud? Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse to suggest the real thing. So C.S. Lewis had an interesting perspective on that. So that was the temple of, uh, of pleasure. And Eidelman moves over to the temple of power. In my experience in the military, in academia, uh, in the, in, uh, as a contractor uh, in, in telecommunications or, or in, the, in the government, I've seen a lot of these three kinds of gods uh, and I came up with the fourth God, which you're happy to know I forgot it. So I'm not going to cover it unless it pops up to me. But 
He talks about Chuck Bentley who chases success. And the odd thing about success was that Chuck was so led up by it all that he sacrificed his family and everything for it. It was like a new kind of drug. It was like he was riding an adrenaline high. See, he was born into a, a, a um, lower economic, uh, socially economic family. And he worked hard at school. He was the first one to get a college degree. He, he worked hard at his job, and he rose up, and, and, and he, he got, got on a wave of it. And he was motivated. He was riding this adrenaline wave, except he wouldn't. His wife knew it. His children knew it. And the question Eidelman asks us is, would he sacrifice his family, even himself, on the altar of success? The altar of success. Uh, uh, have you guys ever played King of the Mountain or King of the Hill? Yeah? Huh? Every kid has. Did you know up at the academy in the quadrangle, there's a large mound. And at some point during the Dooley's year, they're required to charge the hill. And the, and the first classes are up at the top fighting them to keep them off the hill and they play king of the mountain. Why do you think the academy does that? Success, Success achievement, yeah. I had a general officer set me down uh, when I was a company grade officer. Uh, a guy by the name of Kavasas. He said, let me show you something, Tyler. And he had a pyramid drawn out in these different levels, second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain, major, lieutenant colonel, colonel, um, general. And he said, and he drew two lines down there, and he said, everybody inside this line, and at the bottom, it was second lieutenants were all the way to the side. But as you get up, the lines come closer, all the way up to general officer. And he says, you'll find that, that, um, I forgot what his racial was that he was using, but he was using like 30, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. As you get up, a higher percentage of your original peer group, your year group, disappear out to the sides because there's not room for them. And you've got to make it to the top of the hill. And that's considered success in the military's eyes. In Luke 18, 18, Luke tells us that a certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit, acquire, earn eternal life? And Jesus chose to cut to the chase because he knew what was in the guy's heart. And that was mammon. Um, Eidelman asked us to conduct a cost analysis, a spiritual cost analysis. And we have to ask the question at the very end of our spiritual cost analysis. In your life... Is God an investor or is he a controlling partner? The predominant message of today's preteen shows shows that a successful life is all about some way to be famous. Are we blessed if we're successful? How do we keep score? We actually have a Christian denomination whose very basic premise is that if you're doing well, you've been predestined to be blessed by God. So if you're, if you're doing well, you're going to heaven. You're successful because God's chosen you. Jesus tells us that it rains on the just and the unjust. 
those 18 babies in Uvalde were not sinners. They weren't predestined to die. But we live in a fallen world. And the point that, that Eidelman kind of gets around to, he alludes to it, is this world is not our home. And like Abraham, we're just sojourners here. But when we're here, what we do with what we have determines our character as we stand before God. And that's what he's trying to get. You can't serve God and serve money, Matthew 6, 24. Chuck made a decision. Uh, together with his life, they committed their God, to serving God and following Jesus wherever he led and whatever the cost. And so that, that turned out well. Jesus became his purpose. And there's the God of money. I don't want to ask us, do you remember when our God of money died? Do you know what year it was? Do you remember that part? 2008, when the God of money died? How many people lost their shirts in the crash? How about the 1920s? There's nobody here that was... No, everybody's young. But I, we've read enough about, about the depression that was in, in the stock market crash. And there's going to be more stock market crashes. We'll probably have another one coming up here soon. Soon. Uh, at least that's what it felt like when many, when the economy seemed to be collapsing in 2008 and we had a recession. Some called it a depression. It's, it's funny how you, you term things. Mark Twain once wrote that some men worship ranks, some men worship heroes, some worship power, some worship God. And over these ideas, they dispute and cannot unite. Except they all worship money. And, and I think he had a good, a good point. We had a, an anecdote in there that uh, it was called the parable of Frank. I think Frank Simmons was a man committed to doing whatever it took to be successful. He too didn't come from a family with money. But things are going to be different for him. And so he worked really hard. He wound up becoming a millionaire. And he put it all together. I don't know if anybody remembers the Beatles song, Richard Corey. Frank Simmons was another Richard Corey. But I work at his factory, and I hate the life I'm living, and I wish that I could be Richard Corey. And, and that's, that's what I, I, I remember from the Beatles talking about it, but it was the same concept. He had all these millions of dollars, and, he, and what he was going to do was was he was going to buy houses and, and build stuff for himself and just enjoy life now that he had it. And he was in a car crash that evening and died. And just like the rich fool that Jesus talks about who was going to build more barns for all the wealth that he had, Frank Simmons died in a car crash one night and didn't enjoy any of it. The key is to keeping money in its right place and remembering that it belongs to God and not us. Like the, like the three servants that had the talents given to them, God's going to give us blessings, monetary levels, that's according to our capabilities of what, we, what he knows we can do with it. What we do with it is our blessing to God. And 
it's not our job to bury it, but it's given it to us to do something with. And so we have to remember that. And Frank Simmons was going to bury his money in his wallet. And he didn't get a chance to do it. Money has divine attributes that we look at. Security, satisfaction, and significance. And Eidelman closed this chapter out with saying that one thing that's even greater than money is forgiveness. And he indicates that forgiveness is the trait that is most linked to happiness. People chase money for happiness. And what this uh, Peterson says is, is that people should be changing, changing forgiveness for happiness. He said it's the queen of all virtues and probably the hardest virtue to come by. You guys are quiet tonight. Can you give them time to talk? Then there's a God of, was it achievement? This one we get into Chuck Colson. Did, did you guys get into Colson? Colson? Was Colson Nixon's hatchet man? Yeah. He worked his way through college, through the Marines, the U.S. Senate, and all the way to becoming an advisor to the President of the United States. Was there anything he could not do? Well, let's, let's look at that. There's something within us that loves, our, we have this like, you got to get it done. And especially west of the Mississippi and southwest of the Mississippi, there seems to be this, this western, I don't know, mantra, mantra, it says, yeah, I'll do anything to help my neighbors, but I don't need anybody to help me because I'm John Wayne and I can do it myself. And I'm going to get it done. Well, one of the desiring qualities of the military academy look for is whether or not a candidate made it to being a Boy Scout. That is one of the discriminators that they use in choosing who's going to make it into the academy. When our lives are all about getting things done, we find out that there's not much room left over for God. I used to, uh, I used to be a scoutmaster, and I noticed one thing that, that, that concerned me. I was in, uh, in Hampton, Virginia, and out here, and that our, our Eagle Scouts, less than 50% of our Eagle Scouts had a religious merit badge on the shawl that they had. Was it that hard? I, even when I was a principal here at PPCS, I'd have uh, kids that were scouts that would come to me because they were part of the Churches of Christ. There's actually a badge you can get. And, they, and I'd work with, work with them. And I, it's like, I, I don't know how to say it, really. It's like we're, we focus on the wrong things. Jesus told Martha... Martha, Martha, you're worried about and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. That's in Luke 10, 40-42. Is our choice Martha's or Mary's? Sometimes, a lot of times, I found myself being Martha. Oh, got to get this done, got to get this done, got to... Oh, I don't have time to get to class. Well, we'll make services. 
because we've got to get these things done, especially around Thanksgiving time, Christmas time, holidays, family coming over. Got to get a lot of stuff done. And we won't wait for Jesus. Chuck Carlson was a hatchet man. He was willing to do anything no matter how much dirt got under his fingernails. He was a man that sold out success to his master. And his master was not God. Mary chose the better, said Jesus. Chuck Carlson, after he wound up going through what he did and was investigated, was, was going to trial uh, uh, with, with Nixon or as a result of his actions with Nixon, found God, made a decision, and he tells in his story that he pleaded guilty because he was. And he wasn't going to let it stand in his way and stand between him and God. And he turned his life around. While he was in prison, he helped other, other prisoners uh, with some legal stuff, with religious stuff. He helped them study the Bible. And he lost everything that we call success and achievement when he went to prison. Achievements are good things until they become our gods. And what would you do different if you had your life to live over? Have you ever Ever played that game, that mental exercise? Oh, if I could be in high school again, what would I do? Oh, if I could be in elementary school again, what would I do? Uh-huh. Oh, if I chose a different college or a different job. Chuck, who had thrown over his own idols, died loving God because he understood that life was not ultimately defined by what he had done, but who he belonged to. We need to put the God of achievement to rest six feet under. Next temple is the temple of love. And I think y'all remember the video of Shannon, the tomboy that was sexually abused as a child. She wound up giving herself to boys because she thought that was where she could find love. And she was trying to be loved. For many, romantic love becomes the focus of our lives. Our popular culture tells us that love makes the world go round. And that all you need to do is love. All you need is love. You sing. Don't you remember that song? No? The Beatles song? All you need is love. Love is all you need is love. Pick your cliche, but what seems clear is that romantic love is the most important subject that we seem to have. Nearly all our music is about this kind of love. If you can't be with the one you love, what do you do? Love the one you're with. You know, it's funny. I like I like the oldies, and I can remember as a kid loving. Oh, these are so great! And now as an adult, I look back at that, and that's all they seem to have is is, is love it has to do with sex and and all of that. And I could not believe, and I'm so disappointed with the '60s. But what did we get out of the 60s? Free love. Yeah. Well, did you know my mother had a, had a, um, a, a used paperback bookstore in El Paso. And she had section rolls. It, it was a pretty, pretty good store. And it, she had rolls and rolls. And it had like science things and drama and mystery and and there was this whole row of Harlequin novels. 
And she said, I asked her, I said, you know, these are all topics <laughs> except that. She says, that's my best-selling paperbacks. What are Holocaust no novels about? Anybody know? Pardon? Romance. Racy romance. Yeah, I mean, and who was the who was on every one of the, of the the front covers? Fabio. Do you guys remember Fabio? Till the goose got him. <laughs> For those that didn't know, Fabio was on what a roller coaster or something like that, and he was coming down like that, and a goose hit him in the face. He wound up. He wasn't good anymore. He didn't look good. So yeah, well. Did you know the Harlequin novels, five and a half novels are sold every second? Psychologist Dorothy Tenval coined the term limerence. It refers to the phenomenon of falling madly, passionately in love, including what happens chemically in the body. We call it lovesick. What happens is, however, is something different. Jacob was in love with Rachel, and he told uh, Laban, I'll work for you seven years in return for your da younger daughter, Rachel, Genesis 29. Guess what happened? Well, Laban, Laban twisted his love sickness into something that he, and, and yeah, and he wound up with Leah. What, what happens, however, when we believe ourselves to be incomplete without a mate, we, we go on a relentless search. And Leah... Eidelman tells us, went on this search. She tried to get Jacob to love her. And she had her first son. Do you remember what she said? He'll love me now because I have a son. But he still loved Rachel. Her second son. He'll love me now because I have a son. She bore Jacob four sons before her last son, she finally says, turned and says, God is pleased with me. And you have to understand the customs and traditions back there at that time. It happened all the way up to, I don't know, almost mid-century in the U.S. But it's believed if a woman can't have a child, if she's barren, she was looked down upon. But a woman that could have children, and lots of them, was glorified. And so Rachel was looking for glory. Glory from her husband. But she wasn't looking for glory from God until her last son and that's when she quit having kids. She found how sweet, how enriching the relationship between a man and a woman can really be when they're bound by the love and the worship of one true God. Then there's the God of family. And I live in a, in a society, or I've grown up in a society. The first trophy I ever got I was in the eighth grade, and it was the Fort Shafter Spartans in Hawaii. We went through the whole season without losing a game. But the Schofield Barracks team did the same. And our second to last game, we tied. And then we played Schofield Barracks and tied them. We had two ties and no losses. Schofield had no ties no loss, or one tie and no losses. So they won. We came in number two, and our coach gave us a participation trophy. It was undefeated. And I look at that, and I said, we weren't undefeated. We were tied. But I say that 
to show that even back then in the 60s, even through today, our kids get participation trophies when they, when they play a game. All they have to do is be there at the last game and they get a trophy. Or they get something to hang around their neck. We, as helicopter parents, and as helicopter grandparents, I, I will confess, go to the games and we have to make sure that they, their little hearts are taken care of. And sometimes I had to question myself, how do you accept graciously the thought that you're going to lose sometimes and the character that it builds? And we don't have the ability to do that. It's because we, we seem to love our kids so much that we don't want them to have any disappointment. And sometimes we love our kids so much, we love them more than God. C.S. Lewis, the, the great British author of the Chronicles of Narnia, once boarded a bus for heaven. He did this in imaginary form, uh, kind of an allegory that, that he wrote in the book, The Great Divorce. I don't know, has anybody read The Great Divorce? It's a good book. It's a book that examines why people choose for or against giving their lives to a full commitment to God. He shows that we're, what we're doing is standing at the very gate of heaven and choosing between internal, eternal glory of God and the empty illusions of earth, what he calls the great divorce between heaven and earth. And so I take it that y'all didn't get into the, the story of the woman who uh, was on the bus with him. And there was a way station halfway between earth and heaven. And you got off and you met somebody from heaven. And a lot of people were, were meeting their loved ones. And this one woman was looking for her son. But her brother came up to her. And the gist of the story is, she wasn't going to see her son until she saw God first. And she had put her son before God. According to the Ten Commandments, we are to honor our parents, but we are to worship only God. There's a point that we cross at times where we worship our kids, or we may even worship a spouse. There might be a time that you worship your father or your mother more than you thought about God. As things stood, that woman made something wonderful, something beautiful, a mother's love for a child into an ugly idol that distorted her other relationships. She didn't even want to see her brother. What if we were tested to prove our love and commitment to God is greater than anything else? Who did? Who was tested? Did he pass? He passed. Genesis 22. Who do you love so fiercely, so protectively, so desperately, but who would you lay down your own life for? The first commandment tells us we're not to have any other gods before God. The second says we're not to make, we are to make no idols in the form of anything, not even in the form of a beloved child. Augustine of Hippo, one of my favorite authors, is an early Christian writer and uh, one, of the, one of the greats in the church. <clears throat> and he called these gods disordered loves. Disordered loves. Because according to him, we have moved this love up above God. 
He meant, illeg- he meant legitimate objects of love that have fallen as much as out of order as a misbuttoned shirt. I think Alan gave that nail about missing the buttons. Well, see, I've got a trick. I start at the bottom, and I find the one hole and the one, bo- and the one button at the bottom, and that's good as long as I don't miss one going up. So a relationship that's disordered love takes God's place in our lives as being uh, ultimately destructive because we put him out of place. And we missed him, so we've messed up our whole lives. We can't expect things or people to fill a God-shaped void. How should we look at our family relationships? My question is to you is, should we love our kids, our families less than we love God? That's a trick question. Nobody wants to answer I think the other is going to fall in place. Good point. So you're welcome. The trick answer is not love family less, but love God more. Not necessarily. What did, what, what, did, what, did, what did Jesus say to Peter when they were walking along and John was behind him? What did he ask Peter? Well, finally he clinched it with saying, don't, don't worry about John, you follow me. Yeah, but what, what were the types of love that he was talking about? Peter, do you agape me? I phileo you. It's not that we should love our family less, but we love our family different than we love God. Is that possible? David loved God. He loved his family, but he, in some cases he tried to put them before God, but he got straightened out. And he realized that God is a totally different kind of love that fills our heart. And in doing so, like Katie said, it helps us to love others. And I often ask that question when Jesus says we should love others as we love ourselves. Why didn't Jesus say we should love others as we love God? Because we're not to love others as we love God. We love God in a different form, an agape form. And that form causes us to love others in an agape form. It, it flows down. It doesn't flow up. The last uh, chapter that we had was the, cha- was the chapter of me, and I added myself and I. <clears throat> it starts off with a, with a kind of a neat little anecdote. It, it talks about uh, a guy by the name of Milton Roich who, uh, who had three patients in the city of, uh, of uh, Giuseppe. Giuseppe? Giuseppe-Lenti. Giuseppe-Lenti. And these guys were all thought, they had, they had the Messiah complex. They all thought they were God. And Island tells us that we confront gods in our lineup at some point in our life but we grapple with the God of me every single moment of every day. One symptom is arrogance, another is insecurity, another is defensiveness, and lastly, the symptom of loneliness. And I I was reading this and I was hearing the news and I listened and I said, Putin falls in to the God of me, myself, and I. And, And I thought about his arrogance, his insecurity, his defensiveness, very defensive. 
and and his loneliness that he has and and we often heard that it's lonely at the top that's because we have become we've looked at the god of me myself and i when we get to the top and it's arrogance and it's it's achievement it's success and, and that's what we have. Uh, 82 to 2006, 16, over 16,000 college students completed an evaluation called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. It's a test that's been around for several decades. Everybody knows what narcissism is. Everybody knows who Narcissus was, right? Juno fell in love with him. He was in love with himself. So she got mad and turned him into a flower that always looks at the stream. The Narcissus flower. Well, narcissism is a is it described as selfishness, conceit, or egotism, egotistic uh, love of yourself. The Lord said, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah 2. God longs for you to experience this living water. He tells Jeremiah, the heavens look on with great horror at the sight of God's children drinking from the nasty cisterns and rejecting the fresh living water of God. I close with a question that I want everyone to walk away with. What God do we worship in our hearts? And we need to make an inventory of what's in there and and set a, a resolution that only our God is the God of our hearts. Thank you all very much. Thank you all for uh, helping me out through this. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.